0: everybody this is uh this is basil I'm, I'm phoning in i'm i'm off i'm off doing a thing uh don't don't worry about it i'm sure you'll hear a little okay, i'm sure you hear a little bit about it later um
1: but but i wasn't able to to be on the line with gonz for this awesome interview with dr michael heiser um what geez. Anyways, uh I'm gonna have to go here soon. Um, but everybody stick around, listen to this awesome thing we've got, and then uh when I get back, uh, I'll be back and then I'll do all the things that I do when I'm back. Okay, oh oh, 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 gotta go. So uh this is Canary Car Radio, my name's Basil,
0: and um, yep, enjoy! Okay,
1: bye. It's-
0: I must admit, everybody that goes to space wants to see an alien, or wants to see some evidence that there is other life in our universe.
1: So the word God, in our eyes, you know, we're saying it's a God, we're saying that this is a God, but it's very possible that their, their word was a different word, like the, the Nephilim. What do we know? We know now we live in an ever-expanding universe, we know that there are billions of stars and planets literally out there, and the universe is getting bigger. We know from our fancy telescopes that just in the last two years more than 20 planets have been identified outside our solar system that seem to be far enough away from their suns and dense enough that they might be able to support some form of life. So. It makes it increasingly less likely that we're alone. Think of how all the differences among people on Earth would seem small if we felt threatened by a space invader. I couldn't help at one point in our discussions with, privately with General Secretary Gorbachev. When you stop to think that we're all God's children wherever we may live in the world, i couldn't help but say to him just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held if suddenly there was a threat to this world from some other species from another planet uh, outside in the universe we'd forget all of the little local differences that we have between our countries and we would find out once and for all that we really are all human beings here on this earth together
0: You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Gans. This is episode number 81, and Basil is out today. Uh, He's somewhere on the planet. Uh, Not on terra firma though, but rather floating over some of the more wet regions of the Earth, otherwise known as the Great Deep. We'll get a report from him when he returns from his explorations to see if he found any evidence uh, for what he has labeled the Murmalian Civilization. Which is a really bad joke, and this is what happens when you don't have Basil here, and it's just me doing this alone, trying to make (laughs) funny jokes. But anyway, don't fret, because our guest today is a scholar in the field of biblical studies and the ancient near east he is the scholar in residence at logos bible software he holds an m.a and a phd in hebrew bible and semitic languages Uh, he also earned an m.a in ancient history from the university of pennsylvania he blogs over at drmsh.com and is the author of the novels the facade and its sequel the portent and we'll get into uh, a couple of some other upcoming books, hopefully uh, nonfiction books titled "The Unseen Realm," which is the more academic book, and then the uh, more mainstream book, "The Supernatural." It is our pleasure here at Canary Cry Radio to welcome back Dr. Michael Heiser. Mike, how you doing, buddy? Very good. Thanks for having me back. All right. Well, our discussion uh, a couple years ago it was actually episode forty uh was definitely one of our more popular episodes, so I'm personally thrilled to have you back, and Basil was pretty disappointed that he's not going to be able to be here for this. But first off, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, sending me a copy of the portent, and I'm waiting through it now, and actually I decided to reread the facade all the way through uh, before I got into the portent, so it's kind of a seamless, you know, big read. I think it's been about four years since I read the facade, but I gotta say, <laughs> you know, it, it was better this time around. And maybe it's because um, I'm just more aware of what's going on, both in terms of, you know, the sort of dark world of alternative and declassified history, uh, but also yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit more familiar with the, the theology that you've been <clears throat> presenting in your blog and, and, you know, various papers and stuff. So I appreciate that. But for our audience who may not have read the facade, it's recommended by me and by several others who have read the facade and, and are working and I'm, I'm working on the portent, but others who have finished the portent that you should read the facade first, uh, because you won't know what's going on in the portent if you don't. So, uh, right. just to, for the audience that haven't read the facade, is it okay if we do a little bit of setting up of the novels in general before we get into some of the more greater themes? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, cool. So, one of the first questions I had was about the main character of Dr. Brian Scott. And obviously this character, uh, I believe you have mentioned that, you know, represents you. Uh, But (laughs) I was curious to find out how much of the backstory surrounding Brian are actual real life experiences. And, you know, we don't have to get into super specifics, but you know, some of the general questions about his, his past with his family, Uh, but more loosely his academic history, you know, being marginalized, uh, for mm-hmm. presenting some less than orthodox views uh, to the establishment, but uh, how much of the the character of Doctor Brian Scott
1: reflects your own personal life and history? Okay, well the the main character is broadly and basically me, uh, and I I tell people the reason I did that when I wrote the facade, which I did during what should have been the first year of my dissertation. Uh, I had never done fiction before. I'd done a lot of academic writing, obviously, but I needed to know at least one person in the novel. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, well, I, you know, I got to put myself in there, and and the the subject matter was very natural because, you know, we were, I knew we were going to be talking about ancient texts, and I, of course, I had a a strong, you know, academic interest in ufology and all sorts of alternative history. So it was kind of a natural thing. I would say emotionally, uh, he is me during my college years, you know, that sort of thing, early to mid-20s. Um, again, kind of, you know, without going into, into gory details of my own background, um, you know, I, I was never in the, in the popular circle. I mean, I was an athlete. I played lots of sports. But just never, you know, a part of the click, you know. And so, you know, I didn't have a lot of the, the, uh, I hate to call them normal, but normal uh, experiences that a, a high schooler would would have. And I, I think that now I look back on it and think it's a good thing. I also became a believer in high school, and, and I, I grew up in a really, <clears throat> really antagonistic situation, you know, toward my faith. Uh, I was the only person in my family who was a believer and my my parents, who are actually believers now, you know, it took twenty some years uh, for them to, you know, uh, embrace the Lord. But uh, they admitted to me afterwards that they used to do things to me deliberately just to see what I would do. Wow. Um, as as a Christian, uh, and it was it wasn't what I would call constant, but it was it was a, a regular sort of. Uh, under the surface kind of confrontation that that sort of environment so some of these things go into into you know Brian's own background um, i'll give you one one example i i just you know I've, i know this is going to shock people uh I, I was not a very attractive young young person no. <laughs> i was overweight you know and all these things you know so i had basically had no experience you know, with the opposite sex. And I walked into my, my, uh, an argument that my parents were having one day about whether I was gay. <laughs> because I, because I didn't go out and carouse and, you know, wow, you know, do, the, do the whole, you know, thing with in the backseat of the car with the girls. And that was what they were used to. And that was what they were, I had an older brother and that was basically his whole life. <laughs> you, know, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, it it was really an awkward situation again uh because of of my faith it, it it was also again just this sort of underlying confrontational kind of thing but i always tried to do the right thing and and obey them i mean they wouldn't let me take my bible to school i wasn't allowed to go to church a lot uh just stuff like that and and you know you, you just try to do the right thing and eventually you know they they did come to the lord but a lot of that is mixed up you know into into Brian you know and, and who he is and his his awkwardness and basically social ineptitude, my wife would tell tell you that that's still a big part of me <laughs> um, well, I, she I got love over that.
0: it yeah, I love that about the character it's it's a very relatable part of it, yeah right
1: he, he's what, what I want to do in the novel is I want to have normal characters and I, and I don't want it to be a comic book you know the, the, you, you're not going to have like these, they're not going to get out of jams by time traveling, you know, they're not going <laughs> to, you know, all these cliche things in science fiction, you know, The some you know, supernatural agent like with direct intervention at just the right time, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, there, there's obviously a supernatural thread that, that is woven through the whole thing. Because whether we like to believe it or not, or whether we, we feel we can, we, we've, we've experienced it or not, that is life that is life for the Christian. Right. There is a supernatural thread. Uh, a lot of times we just lack perspective uh, as far as providence. Providence is a major theme in the facade, and it's also a major theme in, in the portent because mm-hmm. it's a major theme in my own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, again, these these things filter down into uh, the main character. Now, there, there are, my parents uh, were not killed <laughs> They, I mean, they, they, they give it to me all the time. You know, my, my mom just reread the facade and reread the portent. And it's like, well, we're still dead. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, my thing is, well, you know, keep it up, and I'll bring you back and kill you again. You know, I just <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they, they have not, you know, been. I actually had people ask me who knew me, um, you know, whether something had happened to my parents. You know, after the facade came out, it's like, no, 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 nothing like that. But Again, there are smaller things that, that factor into it. Now, I don't want to give too much away here, but in, in the portent, sure. there are two things specifically that really, you know, again, drift over into the paranormal, supernatural sort of area that, that are personal uh, to me. Uh, there, there's going to come a point where Brian is, is taken to a, a particular location and he's going to reference a recurring dream uh that you know is, is something that you know i've i've experienced there, there's another another um incident where uh two of the other characters are re relating how they met and found a third character and it involves a um a, i guess the best way to say it is a voice from the ether Hmm. And and sort of uh, a, um, I, I make it I make it a kind of an angelic appearance, but but not not an angel. Uh, it's someone who is dead uh, that is seen and has a message. Hmm. Again, that that is directly derivative, actually, to something that happened to my parents so there there are things like that in the book uh, when, when I say on the cover everything you know every document every text all the stuff's real in the book it it even gets down to stuff like that right um, obviously without you know the murders and the and the ufo's and all that kind of stuff but um, all that sort of stuff is derived from and built off of uh, events from you know people's lives that i know or myself. Sure, yeah,
0: and, and we'll get into, I have some questions about some of the characters uh, a little bit later, um, and I think you relayed the, the story about a particular clock that uh, yeah. your, your parents had in, in A View from yeah. the Bunker, and definitely check out that interview as well, you know, to get that full story, but on that topic of, of you know, the official documents of the portent exists, and, and that's a really big selling point, I think, for this book, and, or both books, and one of the things that uh, makes it unique is the fringe subject matter, you know, and and mm-hmm. coming from documented evidence. And I mean, you bring up a lot of different things in both books. Oh, just, I mean, j-
1: just wait till the second half of the book. Okay, it's yeah. Just, <laughs> I'm, I, I've the, been warned. <laughs> one of one of the readers, uh, one of the blurbs on the book says something like, "You know, he he answers questions that I didn't even know needed to be asked." You know, right. and, and that is largely true. Right. Um, that's not just marketing shtick, you know. Hey, will you please put this in a blurb? No, I mean that—that's, you know, it, it is what it is. Right, and I think that's important because I mean,
0: uh, treading in the fringe, I mean, we bring up topics like Project Bluebeam, MK Ultra. Uh, you mentioned Operation Mockingbird, Cointelpro. Uh, you even have a mention about population control with vaccinations, uh, Agenda 21. Uh, I, I, I recall a moment in the facade where a character mentions alien bases on the dark side of the moon. I, mean, <laughs> um, as a as a you know down to earth Bible scholar doing this, uh, you know what was sort of the I guess your discovery of these subject matters as you went through and did some of the research. Did it surprise you that some of these things are documented?
1: Well, I mean, there there are some things that, like the, the alien bases thing. I mean, none of the that isn't part of the, part of the plot line, right? Um, right. You know, and I don't I don't believe there are alien bases on the moon or anything like that because I, I haven't come across any concrete evidence for that. But it becomes part of of a scene and part of a discussion and, and sets a tone and that sort of thing. If the characters are interacting with it, that's a different story, and and and. Again, with, with with a lot of the uh, the other things that you mentioned, there, there's a particular scene where uh, again Brian is sort of meeting and uh, you know it's kind of awkward to say getting to know <laughs> <laughs> uh, some other people in the story, but th- some of this stuff comes out, and I mean all these things, Agenda 21, MK Ultra, all this stuff. Th- this is literally on the books. You don't have to. To just troll around websites to find this stuff. Right. You can actually find this material in the Congressional Record, you know, Congressional testimony, uh, declassified documents that were obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, it, you don't. You really don't have to make any of it up. Uh, is is the point? Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I I use certain of those things again. Uh, from that point into the book, uh, some of it is laying groundwork for book three. Uh, there, there's going to be a, a scene in the poor tent that you haven't gotten to yet, uh, where the the villain, uh, the, the you know the the bad guy who the reader knows is more than human. Right. Uh, Brian does not know this, um, but he he more or less says, you know, it doesn't really matter to us. If humanity, you know, just kills kills themselves, you know that doesn't matter. We don't we don't really care, you know, about fascism and and how things are trending toward fascism, and you're going to have a ruling elite and they're going to kill off the population. The, the villain says, who, "Who cares? You know, if if that helps us, fine. If it doesn't, who cares? Because our agenda is different." Uh, you know, they they literally are they literally watch. What is going on, and if something is useful, then that can be incorporated. If it's not, it's ignored. It just is what it is. And so, this whole idea of—I think one of the problems when you get into this alternative history and conspiracy theory and everything like this—there's this mindset that everybody's on the same page, right? And and moving and acting monolithically—that it's all one big coherent, unified, you know, conspiracy. And, and my view is that that's that's nonsense. Uh, you have free will beings, human and non-human, and they are competing for their own interests. Mm-hmm. And, you know, may the worst one win. It, it, it's just that sort of, you know, kind of dynamic. And so, even in the facade, you get hints toward the end that there are agendas nestled into agendas nestled into other agendas. Right, right. And and there are just multiple things going on. And that, that continues in, in the portent. You get a clearer picture of this particular uh, agenda, because of the interest that the villain has in brian and and it 's only it, it 's purely entertainment that this this individual knows he 's superior and knows that uh, that these puny you know people standing in his way are not going to be able to stop him. And so he, again, during this this one scene, this one conversation, you know, the the portent gave me the opportunity to sort of be the evil mastermind. What what would my endgame be, and what would I do? How would I pull it off? Right. And he says to Brian, he goes, Look, there's there's half a dozen ways we could get done what we want to get done. This one's just the most interesting because it involves you. I want you to suffer. You mm. interest me. And when when I get bored with you, then I'll kill you. Hmm. You know, then I'll move on. Um, but he, he's he's going to be dropping things to him, enough information that by the end of the book, Brian and and those who are, are with him, uh, are going to get a reasonably clear picture, at least of the framework, of of what the what the agenda is. You know what what portends, what the future portends, and again, the evil intelligence, wants him to know because he says, I want you to be watching it when it happens and knowing that it's all a fraud and you'll be able to do nothing about it. You know, I, I, I want you to experience that. right? And that's, that's why the lines are drawn where they're drawn.
0: Right, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that's a, it's a sentiment that, um, I think many of us uh, at least in our little niche over here talking about these things doing podcasts and whatnot are starting to uh really grab a hold of I, I you know I had listened to a couple of your interviews with others like Derek and Natalina. Uh, I had been uh studying up on Chris White's recent uh view about a potential uh Jewish Messiah being uh, the uh, you know presentation of the antichrist um and sort of this idea that Everything we thought we understood about, especially eschatology, could be used against us uh, in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, for example, you know, Chris White brings this up a lot, which is the Gog-Magog war, and, you know, everyone's talking about this is the 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 eminent uh, event, biblical prophecy, the, the event that's going to be fulfilled, but there are some evidence that would suggest biblically that the Gog-Magog war happens after the millennium. And other evidence that suggests that the Antichrist wars, uh, for example, in Daniel 11, are trying to fulfill, make it look like the Antichrist is fulfilling that prophecy and, and other prophecies uh, from like Jeremiah 31 and other places. So, I mean, that's that's really, that hit home for me. And uh, it really reframed my whole approach and sort of perspective of how to study these things because... <laughs> there are, uh, you know, many who are very adamant about their particular sort of scenario, Sure. and um, I, I think as we go along here, it's going to become more important to at least hear out different potential possibilities and not necessarily, you know, squash them just because you know you you happen to disagree with the translation or something. But is this something that you've seen from from early on and you wanted to incorporate into the story, or is it? You know, it, was it something you discovered as you sort of, you know, uh, the story sort of played itself out?
1: Well, a, a couple of years ago on my, on my blog, one of, one of my blogs, the Naked Bible blog, I did a series on why an obsession with prophecy is a waste of time. And it's, I don't know, it's got 15 parts to it. The, the key word there is obsession. Right. Um, you know, prophecy is like any other, you know, segment of biblical theology. It's worth Thinking about worth studying, but there are people who who essentially marry their faith to their view of, of end times, which is a horrible mistake. Mm. Um, it prophecy is notoriously uh, convoluted, confusing. Uh, it 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 is there are there is no prophetic position that is self-evident from the biblical text so the next time someone says my view of prophecy is the biblical view you can safely ignore them <laughs> uh, it, none of it is self-evident from the biblical text it all prophecy is driven and this is what my series was about prophecy is driven by by your presuppositions mm. in a few key areas, maybe half a dozen key areas and when you make decisions, about how you will think about X, that will immediately put you on a road to a certain conclusion, to a certain destination. Right. There are are very discernible, clear reasons why the wider Christian world has so many different views of of end times. It's because of the decisions that are made at key junctures about certain presuppositions, Mm. none of which are completely clear. Uh, Now, I personally think that this is deliberate. Uh, It's a deliberate part of the text. It's a deliberate part of inspiration. Mm. Because prophecy was cryptic the first time. Right. Uh, And I I spend a a whole chapter in this on on the upcoming book, The Unseen Realm, and I've actually blogged a little bit about it. That, you know, I, I take Paul seriously in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, had the rulers of this world known you know, what, what the fallout would have been to killing Jesus, they would never have done it. Right. Because it, it was the linchpin to the plan for their own undoing. Okay, these, these are not morons, okay? The, you know, the powers of darkness are not morons, okay? They, but they didn't know what the plan was. Now, they certainly knew when he, when he got there. When right. We, we get that from the Gospels. They knew who he was. But their conclusion to solving that problem was to kill him not realizing that that was the very thing that needed to happen. And, and Jesus does certain things in certain places. I mean, we, we read the Gospels like it's some, you know, AAA triptych, you know, and <laughs> like you stop here and you stop there, and you know, who cares? <laughs> I mean, Jesus is going to places and saying certain things and doing certain things for very deliberate reasons. He's telegraphing that the time of reversal has begun, and he's poking them in the eye. He's provoking a response. He wants them to kill him.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. Uh, but we, we miss a lot of this, this sort of thing. Well, all of that was cryptic, even after the resurrection. You know, there are a couple places in the, in the Gospels and Acts where it says that, that he had to enlighten the minds of the disciples so they'd get it. If you could just read it in your Old Testament, he wouldn't have needed to, to have done that. Right. Uh, prophecy, you know, the first time around is what I call a, a, a cryptic mosaic, uh, you, you will not read, there is no passage that talks about uh, the Messiah needs to be God incarnate, he needs to, you know, be born of a, of a virgin, he needs to, you know, do this and that, he needs to die a substitutionary death and rise from the dead. It, you, you've got all of that, you've got the picture that we know blown into a hundred pieces, mm-hmm. and it's scattered throughout the Old Testament. You cannot just read it anywhere. Right, and we only know what what the correct assemblage of those pieces is because we look at it from hindsight. They didn't have hindsight, even after the resurrection. They only had a, a you know a couple. They, they had a real dim view of what what's going on because their immediate impulse is, "Well, are you going to restore the kingdom now?" You know, I mean, they they just they don't get the program even going all the way back to to Genesis one. Again, we we look at it. And we think we, we see more, and in some cases we do, but the disciples were not, you know, just nitwits. I mean, they, you know, we, we tend to look at them and like, oh, bless your pointed head, you know, you couldn't figure this out and now we can. Um, they, they, they couldn't get it. They couldn't get the whole picture because that was deliberate. And so my question always is to prophecy people, and, and again, I, I, taught, I taught this stuff for years in the college level. I know exactly where to go to just undermine everybody's view, (laughs) Uh, and 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 it's not, it doesn't take much effort, okay, because again, it's all driven by presuppositions, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm trying to say, look, don't marry your faith to this. Mm. If it was cryptic the first time, what gives you the the indication that it's not going to be cryptic the next time around? Mm. I mean, this is a real battle, it's a real war. The other side, the powers of darkness really think they have something to win here. Um, you know, the way I put it in, in the portent is, is again, the, the Brian's enemy says that they get into a discussion about God, and he's like, well, we, you know, we know who God is. We know we can't kill God. But what we can do is, is kill off, you know, his, his children, and even better. Even better than that, because that's just a ticket to heaven, even better than that, we can get his children to forsake him, mm. to turn to other gods, believing that they're embracing the right thing when they're not. Right. It's going to look exactly like what they expect, but it will not be what they think it is. Right. And and so then then he, he starts taunting Brian. He says, So the Israelites were elect, weren't they? Well, of course, you know, well, but, but they 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 turned and worshiped Baal. They thought that Baal was Yahweh. Do we have Baal worshippers in heaven? Mm. You know, well no we don't. And so he 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 traps Brian intellectually, uh, knowing what he, he already thinks about all these things. Right. And basically his message is look, we're going to do what we are doing. To move the herd, we will do something because we know it will provoke a response in the wider world, and especially among this group that we're actually targeting, which is you, and and the people of your faith. We know what they expect. We're going to give them what they expect, and they will react the way we know they will react. And when they react over here, we're going to do something else to move the herd to the next place, into the next place, to the next place. Until they finally embrace the thing that they think is real, but we know, and of course he says, and you will know, isn't. And they will surrender their faith one by one, not realizing what they're doing. And you can't stop it. Mm. And I want you to watch it, again, because this entertains me. You know, I I want to see you suffer, because basically you're, you're, you know, it, the, the portent takes a little, you get a little insight in, again, a little bit of a piece as to why Brian wound up where he wound up in the facade.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We know part of that picture in the facade, but there's, there's another little breadcrumb that's sort of put out there. And, and it, it's all about this being uh, wanting to hurt him, you know, he, he, because it, it's for his amusement. So you get this this sense of of complete overarching superiority, mm-hmm. and and when you look at it, well, yeah, that's kind of true, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like you know we I that Brian is just no match, you know, f- and, and nobody is you know for this particular you know individual, and th- he, it's just an orchestration, and so I, I the portent plays on this notion that. There are multitudes of Christians who really think that their view of end times is just buttoned down, self-evident from the Bible, mm-hmm. and they are fully expecting a specific sequence of events. And if I were intelligent evil, I would like that right. because that, that tells me how to move the herd
0: to where I want them to go. Right. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of, uh, again, traversing in some of the conspiracy world and whatnot. There is a a thought that's out there, and this is actually a secular, uh, you know, secular researchers from their perspective. There's this idea of what's called the eschaton. and, And the idea is that these elite or whoever they are, are purposefully trying to create the scenario of, you know, fulfillment of certain prophecies um, you know, using the book of Revelation as a blueprint, so to speak, to uh, make it appear as if certain things are being fulfilled. So, you know, in terms of that agenda, I think
1: you're pretty spot on. The the other strategy for this, and, and ultimately this is what I think UFO stuff is about, the, the the UFO mythology, the alien mythology is probably a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. The extraterrestrial mythology, even if there really are extraterrestrials, they they will just be... They will be a convenient prop for the extraterrestrial mythology, and that is to redefine words like God, mm-hmm. uh, to redefine theism, to redefine uh, Christianity, you know who, who Jesus was, to redefine what what it means to be human, and human destiny, and and what. If we were created in, in God's image, what is what is it that that we have the right to do and the destiny to do? All these are big theological things, and and you know the, the 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 control point is Scripture, and so Scripture gives us definitions and and interconnects these ideas in specific ways. But if you take all those things and redefine the terms, that is, if you control the language, uh, then again it becomes something altogether different, and and the way you Gain control of the language is to gain control or at least be in significant control. Of, of the narrative of, of life, you know, people's lives as they experience it. And so, things like transhumanism are significant because they do get us to re to rethink what it means to be human and, mm-hmm. and what our destiny is. You get the, the, these themes in film and TV and movies all the time. It's just endless. Right. You know, I have books on my shelves by scholars that, that talk about how, how these narrative points have been engineered in comic books since the 1920s. Mm. You know, it... If again, if you want the herd to move, all you need is to be patient. You need to <laughs> <laughs> you need to take the long look uh, and be patient and work the program. You know, and again, we're we're so because it's our life and we're it's a defined point of time, and you know, you know basically we, you know, we we go through our our adolescence, and who's thinking about anything big there? You know, and we you know we we have this like window of like thirty or forty years as thinking adults. That now, like now, we're awake. You know, <laughs> now we're looking at stuff. You know, and and we always define everything in light of our own environment, our mm-hmm. own time period, our own set of contacts, our own traditions. And again, if 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 you're if you're really an intelligent evil being, a sinister being. That's good stuff because it's all useful. Right. But but you're working a plan that is far, far older mm-hmm. and you you always have the end in mind and so you steer, you're constantly steering. And so we don't intelligent evil wouldn't have to mimic exactly, you know, what someone's reading of the book of Revelation is. Mm. What they would have to do is they would have to take the key points and recast them. Mm. Even that will be sufficient because after 10, 20, 50, 100 years of moving people's mindsets, moving their worldviews in certain directions to embrace certain ideas that will then become the definitions for these biblical things, all you need then is tripwires Mm. to have the things fall into place. And so, again, the portent begins to lay this sort of thing out, and books after it. We'll take specific pieces of it, uh, and and again, th- there'll will be a, a series of little. Okay, here's here's how the herd's moving here. Here's how it's moving there. Here's what they're doing. Here's what they've done. You know that that sort of thing. You're you're essentially going to follow the plan. And of course, for, for Brian and and those who are, are his friends, it's like well, you know, we may not be able to do anything ultimately to to stop this, although. Again, you know, I'm not gonna give too much away, although there is a means. They will have a means to do that. And it's it's hinted at uh, in in the portent, but they haven't discovered it yet. They will have a means to, to just blow the whole thing up and make the the you know, the evil mastermind, you know, scrap the plan and come up with something else. Right. Whether they realize it in time or not is you know, that that I don't know that yet. But you know, you I want people again to get this sense that you know maybe we just need to slow down, and we need to start thinking about ideas
0: mm-hmm.
1: and language, okay, and and just worldview, you know, this sort of thing rather than 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 I, boy, you know, I'm going to write this book and I've got everything figured out here. You know, I got all the numbers <laughs> and I got it in the spreadsheet. You know, and I'm the next Hal Lindsey. You know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> And and I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out and you know people are gonna look at me like I've I've solved every it's just nonsense mm. okay it it it, it is, again no view is self-evident um, you know at, at future congress a couple years ago I did a session that was moderately well attended <laughs> <laughs> on entitled what you know may not be so. Uh, and I and I took people through again some of the, the the things that are legitimate. Well, it could go either way, you know, right. kind of things that relate to ultimately to to biblical prophecy and where you, where you come out. But a lot of Christians are just simply not aware of this because they're in a specific church within a specific tradition, mm. whether it's a denomination or some other tradition. And and the the pastor's concern is to pass on that tradition. And so, that's what you get taught, and that becomes your biblical theology. And again, I'm not saying that that's wrong, or it's evil, or it's sinister, It just, that's just the way it is. Right. And most people are are content with that, but, you know, for for those of us whose lives are spent, you know, in the text and, you know, whether we're scholars or not, we just know it ain't that simple. And it, you know, all I'm trying to do is just wave the flag. Right. (laughs) It ain't that simple. (laughs) You know, you might want to put some put some more thought into this. It just ain't that simple. Yeah, and I and
0: I know that I, I think you bring up some really important points and because we we do kind of shape everything from our own subjective sort of point of reference in time and history and everything else. Sure, we're human. Right? What else are we gonna do? <laughs> um <laughs> and, and I, I actually and the audience knows this and I'm working on my first book and it's on the topic of uh the secret space program. And, uh, you know, I would call it hyper speculation of what might be going on uh, behind the scenes and stuff. But looking at that topic, uh, especially, you know, there's a lot of like space stuff going on in the news and everything. Uh, Just recently, there was a NASA project revealed a new rocket that's supposed to launch four people into deep space in a mission called Orion. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I just saw the movie Interstellar. Uh, I'm a few weeks late. You know, I'm, I'm pretty... I saw it alone, you know, because I have friends that... (laughs) I saw it too. (laughs) Uh, You know, and the premise of the film was that, you know, Earth's resources are running out because of a a contemporary dust bowl kind of scenario. And humanity needs to explore beyond our solar system to find a new home with the... I think the famous quote of the film was, you know, mankind was born on Earth, but we were never meant to die here. And just as a spoiler alert, because it's been a while since the movie's been out, uh, the saviors of humanity are like humans from the future who evolved into higher dimensional beings, which is as new age as it gets. But, you know, stated plainly, what, what's your opinion in terms of space travel, Uh, you know, because as we kind of, I think that film was sort of, you know, obviously we're not at that point yet where we need to, you know, definitely explore other possibilities to get off earth or or whatever, but that's kind of uh, what the secret space program research Seems to suggest, in terms of a, a breakaway civilization, uh, which is coined by Richard Dolan of you know some secret elite group or whatever, a group of people who have access to some technologies that may be you know well advanced from where we are publicly, and potentially you know they're looking to preserve humanity you know in the stars and things like that. How does that you know what what from a biblical point of view? What is your take on space exploration in general? Well
1: you know this is this is that's such a multifaceted <laughs> sorry <laughs> question i mean yeah you can go five or six different directions from that um you know i i think i think um it is sort of intrinsic to to the human being uh to explore and do things like that sort of find out find out what makes reality tick, what makes the Earth tick, you know, all this, you know, science, right. the scientific enterprise, I think, is a, is a direct uh, derivative of the fact that we are created as as divine imagers, and, and you know, we, we share certain attributes that, of course, are going to propel that kind of thing. So, at its most basic level, because, you know, all... You, you could look at it and say, well, if humans leave the planet, they've left their domain, you know, and they, their, their proper estate and, and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, and that sort of implies, even though it's not intentional, that, that what, what else is out there? Either A, is off limits to humans, and we don't actually have a, a command that says that, or B, that, that it's somehow the domain of, of other beings or something like that. Again, these aren't stated things, but they're, they sort of go along with the suggestion I think at its most basic level, uh, that things like the dominion mandate, yes, they do pertain to Earth because that's what the biblical writer knows. The biblical writer is not a scientist. He doesn't know about outer space. Right. He thinks God is walking on the dome of heaven and sitting on it, and the earth is his footstool and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is typical ancient Near Eastern cosmology. There's nothing unusual about it, you can find it elsewhere. You know there are the key theological differences with the way the Bible articulates it, but at you know at the core it's basically the same. Well, I mean that is what it is. Well, the Bible also envisioned only seventy nations that you know we happen to know that were the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean world. It doesn't talk about North America and South America and all this other stuff. But we know from the Great Commission and other passages that that there's an idea conveyed. Mm-hmm. That all the nations of the earth are the domain of Yahweh, and he will reclaim them, and and and, and they are his by right. And that extends beyond just the ancient Near East. It extends, it, it, it extends beyond to the places that God knew were on the planet, but maybe the biblical writer didn't. And God didn't really care to tell him, because it's not necessary to mm-hmm. tell him. And it would frankly be a waste of time you know i always use the illustration you know we could have god could have inspired the bible right now you know and use used different language and had different people we we know more about science the the, the thing would have would have sounded a lot different right. but it still wouldn't be precise because if god really told even stephen hawking what he did and how he did it it would be a waste of god's time hmm. because his brain is too small to grasp it <laughs> so it, it Again, all this goes goes back to what the Bible is, what inspiration is, God's choices in the second millennium B.C. This is the time I want people to start writing stuff down. All of that. Now, that that is to say that since theologically things in the Bible expand beyond what the biblical writer knew, I think theologically mm-hmm. we could say that the human endeavor, the human pursuit, the human exploration can expand off the planet. I mean, it's, it's a theological extension. There's no verse for that, mm-hmm. but it's just a theological extension that has precedent, you know, in biblical theology. Now, having said all that, we'll go down another road. I do think that there is reasonable evidence for, at least at the end of the Second World War, you had rogue technology uh, my own personal view is, is that it it could have survived outside the two main superpowers, the U.S. and the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. I think that's possible. I don't think it would scale, though. And I think the more reasonable idea is that at the end of the Cold War, we inherited the <laughs> we inherited the musical chairs political thing of dueling fascisms, mm-hmm. and that is fascism on the left. Versus fascism on the right, the uh, pe- people don't realize how enamored people in the U.S., including presidents all the way up through our political apparatus, they were enamored with the, with the Russians, with with communism. Mm-hmm. And that changed a little bit when it became violent, but it didn't change altogether. But it, it was a utopian fantasy. After the war, you know we, you know. The, the, the Nazis were the opponents of, of the, the, the utopian Utopians, uh, Soviets. And so, you know, we, we have, again, the, these two systems of fascism, one you know utopian, the other one is sort of more nationalistic, and that's really the difference between Nazism and Communism. People wonder, well, they, they kind of believe in the same things, what makes them different? Uh, Hitler tied his ideas to nationalism and the idea of a master race. The mm-hmm. Russians never did that it was it was religious, right, so what happens is we have left lovers in our political apparatus, and then we inherit Nazis the fascists from the right via paper clip, mm. and all of these people are operating within what we call the military industrial complex. Mm. they have their own agendas, they have their own way of thinking about things, and I, I think we just inherited that you know and, and I think it filters out in in a number of ways to what we see today politically as well. Right, yeah. But all that is to say that when it comes to the military-industrial complex and the space program, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there were a small number of elites on either or both sides who want us to do certain things in space and even including perhaps the preservation of humanity elsewhere at the expense of the people Mm here… Uh, that they can actually again accomplish their utopian vision and that, and they'll view it in religious terms that this is this is our destiny this is this is why we're here right. whether they believe in God or not uh, if, if they believe that we come from some other life source panspermia mm-hmm. you know that we're really extraterrestrials in some way well then this is our destiny I mean there's all sorts of ways to legitimize this so I don't have any trouble believing that at all but here's the important thing. I don't buy a lot of what Hoagland says, you know, about the you know this this space agenda right. and all that. But I, I I don't think it's impossible or even unreasonable to think that there are people, there are individuals uh, within this apparatus that are well placed that really think this way, mm-hmm. and and if they are in the position where they can nudge an idea forward, they'll do it. Yeah. I mean, in other words, let's put it this way. I think we could have another, maybe two or three Jack Parsons in the military industrial complex. Now, Parsons was a nutcase. I mean, if you look at him (laughs) rationally, you know, I'm going to open up a portal, you know, to evil spirits and like, you know, the whole Aleister Crowley thing, I mean, he really believed this and he also happened to be like the leading rocket scientist of his day. So, you know, could we have a couple of those, a handful of those in there somewhere? Sure. Why couldn't we? We had one before, right? You know, it, 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 it's not unreasonable to think. So, so to me, that where, where you sort of jump the shark is when you're, you're you, know, you you sort of try to apply this to ripple it through the whole system, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, like make it this this you, you scale it upward. I don't think you'd need to do that to to have it be something real that is a threat to lots of people if, right. if you follow my train of thought there yeah
0: yeah it's it's i guess i'm coming at it from a perspective of what sorts of ways could the church deal with those aspects moving forward in terms of you know i mean i i, I wasn't around during the the moon uh the apollo missions or anything like that i i don't know what the church how the church responded to those things at the time um, but I just, you know, I just find it as a fascinating study to look at, and in, in, in terms of where, again, you bring up the important questions about our theology, our worldview, and that's really, I think, at the the
1: core of what's going yeah, on here, because it it, it, it is. It, it doesn't matter if there's if we have one Jack Parsons in there or ten or a thousand. It, it on one level, it just doesn't matter, right? Because the only way that 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 believers are going to have any impact on this is not you know some of your i h- hope none of your listeners this applies to but you, know, you might want to plug your plug your ears here the solution is not in our government oh, it is yeah. not in a political party yeah, don't, don't worry about it that. it's <laughs> not power you know oh we won the last election it's not that at all i mean i don't think i don't know how much clearer jesus could have been when he says my kingdom is not of this world I mean, what part of that sentence is not clear? <laughs> so the, the only the only way that 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 we're going to have a, an impact here is to change hearts and minds, and that is through the gospel, and that takes a long time. Right. But there, it, it began with twelve people and you know a handful of others, you know, in the first century, and you know it did pretty well. But they had to be willing to suffer. Mm-hmm. They had to be willing to let God be God, to let God be sovereign. They had to be willing to suffer. They, they were not taking up arms. They were not trusting in political authorities. They believed that God would actually do what He said He would do, and they were willing to die for it. Mm. And they won the day. Yeah. Okay. At great cost, but they won the day. And that—that that is the only way in our day and age. And again, this is this is also a thread through the portent as well, and it'll continue in in, in the next book. This is how you have to approach it. You have to. Every, if every single Christian just did what they could do right now, where they are at, at their own expense, if necessary, mm. the world literally would change. Yeah. It would change. But, but the, the church is so weak that it's not happening now. Mm. And you know, I'm not one of these guys that, oh, bring persecution on. Man, I'd love that. <laughs> You know, I I want my kids to live through that. That'll make them tough, you know? Uh, I don't want any of that. But at the same time, I have a, I have a growing suspicion that the church in, in the future will become marginalized even more than it is now. I think we are in a post-Christian era. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're definitely in a post-biblical authority era, but I think we'll be in a post-Christian era more and more. I think the church, you know, th- th- at least if, if you want to... Ha- maintain biblical authority your beliefs will be criminalized mm, yeah i think that will probably that that could happen in my lifetime i don't know that it will but i th- i think it could i think the next generation it will happen and the church will have to go underground and and it will there will be persecution real persecution not you know like oh well you know we got to change our Our blueprint here because we have to put in three outlets instead of two, you know, the government's persecuting us. (laughs) It's just nuts. Okay. That's how, that's how we think of persecution. Now I'm talking about something serious, right? But I think that will, to use a a, a bad cliche, separate the men from the boys and it it will have a horrible effect. Lots of people will fall away, but the, the good, the good news is, is that what's left will be real, right? yeah you know, and that 's the only way that that the church, you know the kingdom of God, is going to confront uh, the kingdom of, of men and and the powers that are behind it yeah. it 's the only way it 's going to happen, and I, I could see that
0: theme through more than one of your characters, I think um, throughout at least the facade and, and so far in the portent there's Obviously, Brian, I think represents that um, in, he in does. certain circumstances that he faces. Um,
1: but yeah. on ahead. one level, he doesn't have a whole lot going for him. You know, again, because he, he is who he is. But you just try to do the right thing mm-hmm. and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, and, that, and that's
0: sort of, uh, and I, that's what I love about about the character of Brian. You know, bringing it back to to these novels, but. One other character that I particularly found fascinating, um, which is a, more of a major character in the facade, more so than the portent, although I think his impact is sort of you know rippled through the portent, mm-hmm. is uh, Father Benedict uh, Andrew Benedict, yeah, and and he's a a Jesuit in the story, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know I don't want to give too much away, but he again, played a major role in the facade. And and maybe I'm speaking again from ignorance because I haven't read the the final 200 pages or so of the portent, but from, you know, our sort of alternative fringy niche, the Jesuits are always kind of painted as sort of the bad guys, you know, they're they're part of the satanic world order. They're in concert with Rome and in the business of thwarting the gospel. And, and, uh, you know, so (laughs) I guess my question is what, what... was your influence for for this character in particular and and why is he he not like an evil agent of satan (laughs) as
1: as reality sort of paints him benedict is sort of my nod to malachi martin Mm -hmm. and and people like him who were vocal that frankly most of what's going on in the church at least the 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 upper elite the curia you know and, and the jesuits you know who, again, are um, you know that that sort of are are involved in the apparatus of of the upper elite, the, right. the, the control mechanisms there. Jet, Benedict, if if we were we were interviewing Father Benedict, you'd say most of them are evil. Mm. Most of them have 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 bought the lie. Um, you know, they either they have undermined. Anything that approximates what you might call the gospel, you know, again realizing that there's difference of opinion between Catholic and Protestant to some degree there, right? But they have they have jumped the shark into being in in league with the devil. So he's sort of a nod again to, to Martin and some of Martin's you know works and, and interviews and things like that. So what what Benedict is about is about exposing that and you know, doing what he can to undermine that agenda. Uh, so, it, it, it's really about I- exposure, and, and another character, you know, is sort of his his protege, and, and of course, you know, Brian would, would be sort of include. He, look, he looks to Brian as, as somebody who could be, and, and of course, eventually is, in many ways, a kindred spirit in this. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not afraid to, you know, confront Darkness where where it is right, and again that that's what Benedict's about, you know. And, and in, in the facade, they have conversations about you know the the gospel and the nature of the gospel and things like that. And you know you get you get a little bit of that. You're going to get against some of that in, in the portent because there's a particular character who, um, because of of Benedict, is is sort of brought to a crossroads in life. Uh, and it's going to have to make a decision. Uh, that that decision will will come in in the third book. So I don't want to telegraph any any more than that. But that's essentially what Benedict is about. If you look at our our world today, outside of fiction, I think it is a myth uh, that that everyone connected with the Catholic Church is some sort of evildoer and, and Satan worshiper. I think that's absurd. Right. Um, you, but I, I also think that in the in the upper echelon, and I think you're you're seeing it actually in reaction to uh, to the present pope um, in 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 various ways, and he's getting it from different directions too, uh, and even more so with the, the previous pope, um, that there's a whole lot. In the upper a- apparatus, that's really wrong. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, that just—I think that's an understatement. But you, you follow what I mean? There, there's yeah. just a whole lot going on there that you can't really think of any other words besides corrupt and evil and sinister and dark. <laughs> I mean, it just is what it is. And so, again, you know, Benedict is offended at this, uh, and and his his whole thing is. There's just something going on where, where they're either willing participants in, in a bigger agenda that involves spiritual darkness, or they have been,
0: manipulated, you know, stolen. stolen. Yeah.
1: It's been stolen away. Right. And he does not like it.
0: Right. And, and yeah, and I think he, uh, he also represents some of the, the sentiments you shared, you know, just a few moments ago about, you know, doing what he, what he can. You know, to right. uh, try to do what's right. In another character, I, I think the—I guess you would probably call the second main character in the story—is uh, Melissa Kelly, mm-hmm. um, a pretty dynamic character uh, throughout the story. And there's a there's a portion of the portent that I've gotten past that surrounds uh, the relationship between her and Brian. Mm-hmm. And uh, this particular section was fascinating to me uh, because it speaks into. I guess more of the more uh, the vulnerable aspects of human qualities and, and you know both the characters, but just in, in reality you know we are sort of our insecurities and our self esteem issues and things like that 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 really play into both those characters that I thought you did a, a great job, but I do want to ask uh, again, as a biblical scholar who writes academic papers for a living, um, was it difficult to write some of those more um, I don't want to give away too much, but just some of those more, uh, less academic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. Let's go. With that. Yeah. Uh, those scenes well, I, that, uh, yeah. You know, it, it, how can I say this? The, uh, the, the, the major scene between those two involved what I considered the most Closely guarded secret from the facade, and that was what did Brian take out of his room mm-hmm. uh, at, at the end of the facade? What what did he go back for? What what did he have to wait to, and, and and ask them to wait and get? Right. Um, and so that is answered in that scene. And that scene, at least that part of that scene, has been in my head for years.
0: <laughs> oh wow! I, I will just say that it, it was very powerful, and uh, you know, it, it is one of those. I mean, just to be totally transparent, there, you know, I got, I got a little emotional reading it. You know, it's kind of uh, one of those things that, especially after you invest, you know, in the characters and
1: stuff, it's it's moving, moving scene. So yeah, continue. It, it, what he did, what I would have done. If, if I were him, mm. uh, you know, his, his character, he he is what he is because he's naive, he's inexperienced, he has low self-esteem. She, on the other hand, is just driven by rage. You right. know, and, and that has some resolution in the facade, but, but since they are forced into the situation they're in at the beginning of the portent, mm-hmm. that... You know, her progression proceeds, whereas he just doesn't get any brighter. You know? <laughs> um, but but he he does the things that I would do, mm-hmm. and and says the things that that I would say. Again, just you uh, I, I had to know somebody uh, in in the book, and. So that scene, again, at least that that part of it has been in my head a, a long time. I mean, I, I knew immediately when I wrote it in the facade, I knew what he took, mm. and I, and I knew it would come back, and and it would it would play a role, uh, in in their relationship. Right. So it's awkward, you know. Their relationship is, is awkward, but it 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 grows, and it it grows in sort of normal, kind of. Again, you know, awkward ways where um, she has to become a different person, and he has to become, you know, a little less clueless. You know, <laughs> it just—it's it, it, that sort of thing. And, and, and Melissa, for those of, uh, those who are wondering, M- Melissa is my wife. Was wondering especially <laughs> uh, at the end of the first one. M- Melissa is is really three people. She's a third, uh, my wife. A third Dana Scully, and a third woman that I just didn't like. <laughs> so, so, that that is who she is in in the first book, and the and the last one of those fades, uh, it, it, as as we're in, into the portent.
0: Okay, yeah, that's what I, when I was. She loses
1: say. her rage and, and and her edge. You know, whether I mean, she 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 almost just can't help herself. You know, because. For those who haven't read the facade, there, they're, they're just life and death, death things that happen between them, where she she has to confront her anger and her past and and all these sorts of things, and and it puts her not on a not only on a on a sort of a human trajectory, but also a spiritual trajectory.
0: Right, and, and you know it's interesting because uh, I had known people who had very similar experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, to some of the the scenarios that you paint in Melissa's past. And, uh, man, you do a great job of sort of painting that, uh, you know, the source of that rage, you know, how it could come about. And, um, you know, it's an interesting intersection with that and and just, you know, faith, and especially with Christianity, uh, how you were able to sort of intertwine that into it. And and also, you know, the irony of the Christian faith being sort of, uh, I guess, the key to sort of unlock or unwind some of those things. So I, I thought you did a great job with that. So, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to finishing the rest of the the book here. And, you know, there's, there, I think there's a lot more that could be said that uh, we could probably get into, but uh, I do want to spend some time uh, talking about, and we did touch on it a little bit, but your forthcoming works that I believe is sort of a republishing of of an, an, another work that you had before, uh, The Unseen Realm and The Supernatural. You want to talk about yeah, that it, a bit?
1: Yeah, yeah for your listeners can can actually get the first 3 chapters in the table of contents if they go up to uh, my website which is drmsh.com so dr as in doctor and then my initials msh.com and click on the slider for unseen realm and supernatural uh, you described them well. The unseen realm is a, is an academic work. It's aimed at pastors, seminary students, even you know scholars in in non biblical fields, and also for for lay people who just you know let's be blunt who are just bored with church. They're just not learning anything, <laughs> you know, and and they they want to learn biblical theology. They they just have an inherent sense that it's it's about more than what they're getting in church, right? Um, so it that it's for them, and supernatural is for the the person who's like a total newbie to the bible or christianity or anything like that so they will be out in march of 2015 and the academic one is a a su- substantial rewrite of something that was called on my website the myth that is true mm-hmm. so the title has changed but the myth that is true was a, was a putter project for me um, that has gone on for, for ten years. I mean, I used to dispense parts of it in a newsletter, and it's taken various forms, but it, it is uh, an articulation of what I would call the Divine Council worldview uh, of the Bible. In other words, how uh, Divine Council worldview refers to God's rule uh, through both His non-human and human agents on this planet, uh, and and really, where he's taking everything—human destiny. So it, it it's about divine beings. It's about you know angels and demons and and stuff like that. But the, the the biblical theology of all that stuff is a lot bigger than angels and demons. And 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 again, how all that how that realm intersects with ours and how that works out in a theological narrative, you know, an epic narrative in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it's actually readable now. <laughs> <laughs> You know, before I had put it on the website and it's like, well, I'll get back to this and then someday it'll become a book. And then last year I had some things happen that, uh, you know, again, this is the way most of my life has gone. You know, God has certain people do certain things to me where I can't make any other decision other than the one they give me. <laughs> and and so that's how the, the, the program for me gets moved along with, with great regularity. You'll see that in the novels, too. Um, but it, you know, I had to turn it into a book, and that's what I've been working on at work, believe it or not, um, for the last, you know, nine months. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be out, both of them, at the same time in March in 2015, and it, it, it's good stuff. I mean, if you want biblical theology in, in something that's readable and meaty, then this is… You're going to want to read this, right? And I'm looking
0: forward to it. I feel that it's going to be. It seems like it's going to be sort of a staple piece of work for for the church at large, and, and hopefully it becomes something that's uh, you know puts it into the stratosphere of uh, you know legendary in terms of uh, you know the the <laughs> well, shaping the worldviews and, and helping people understand their worldview better. Uh, I think that's it, a it'll problem. be an
1: interesting experiment because yeah, you know, I, I everybody who's con, who's part of the project. Uh, believes that it will be a book that is simultaneously loved and hated with equal passion mm. And that is, you'll have people read it to think, Where has this been all my life? You know I, wh- why why haven't I been taught these things um, and will just love it, you know like it's the next best thing to slice bread. and then there would be other people who just hate it with equal passion <laughs> right. uh, because because it is it is tradition agnostic. It is tradition apathetic.
0: Mm. Um,
1: I, I don't care about tradition. If you, if you follow my, my blog, I want to give you the the Bible in its own original context, which is not evangelicalism. It's not the Reformation, it's not the Puritans, it's not the Church Fathers, it's not the Catholic Church, you know, just fill in the blank. It's nothing modern. Mm. Okay, the, the, you know, we talk about interpreting the Bible in context all the time. Well, what that really means is interpreting it in light of the context of the writers, the one, the context that produced the thing. Right, and that is rarely done. And and, and so, on on the one hand, it's not going to say, "Oh, you've been believing a; you need to believe b," like you were totally wrong. It's not going to say that, but it's going to say a looks a lot different and is a lot cooler than you thought it was. Mm. Uh, and 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 you're going to be able to. Yeah, I, I use the phrase because other people gave it to me, that this was their response to the to the draft, and and my boss here at work, the one who said, you're going to use work time to make this into a book. <laughs> I mean, he, he just, he looked at me after he'd read it, and he just came into my office and sat down and stared at me for a few seconds, and I'm like, what's going on, you know? And he's like, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> I will never be able to read my Bible the same way again. Wow, you have ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I've had people tell me that. It's like I know, I know but I, I lived it. Yeah, I mean, I lived it. I, I wasn't, I didn't wake up one day and just have all this stuff. Uh, I understand that, but it's a good thing. It's a good
0: thing, right? Uh, and how does um, and I guess this sort of ties into some of the the themes here. But uh, you know, th- there's. Uh, I know that the body of Christ, each sort of individual or, or different ministries have different purposes in the ministry as we don't go ask me what my
1: purpose is. Cause I really <laughs> don't know. <don't>, no, no.
0: <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's not, that's not my, uh, that's not my question. But uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of spiritual warfare, now I, I know that there are some who I feel in my opinion, take it a little too far in terms of, uh, you know, they claim that they're, I don't know, astral projecting or something. I don't know exactly for sure, but they're, 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 you know, slicing demons in half or something. And I mean, there, there are different, you know, reports, so to speak, that are pretty fantastic, but you seem to battle in the realm. If I could sort of use that phrase, uh, where I think spiritual warfare is really going on in, and that's in the, uh, the world of ideas and sort of the, the yeah. world of the mind. And that's a big battlefield. Um, it, but, it's also a more productive
1: battlefield.
0: Sure, yeah, and and but my my uh, my question though is is what do you think of those ministries that do you know do deliverance and uh, and different things that go on in terms of you know expelling demons or exposing you know various I guess entities or whatever's going on? I I haven't really encountered too much of it, but I've mm-hmm. I've experienced enough of things like sleep paralysis and, and strange phenomenon to know that it's real uh what do you what is your take on some of those ministries and and deliverance and things things like that well
1: you know i in some ways this response is going to sound suspiciously biblical (laughs) and that is if you you read through the book of acts there are supernatural confrontations and events Mm -hmm. those things do happen but in most of the content of the book of acts they don't it, it, it's about, it, it is a war for ideas. It's trying to advance the idea called the gospel against its competition, whether it be within the Jewish community or the wider Greco-Roman community or the Hellenistic community whatnot. Um, you, you have to win the battle for ideas. And so, I think both are operative. My, my, my own perspective is that as, as I go through life and as, as people go through life, the modern mind would tend to out of the gate either dismiss or not even allow the notion that you could encounter a non-human being you know uh, you know uh, one of the powers of darkness in your life at any point mm. uh, because we're modern we just we, we dismiss that. that that that's our inclination anyway I think as Christians we need to presume that that could indeed happen at any point in life. I think it's a mistake. I think it's a theological mistake, and I, I think it, it, it's sort of a, an exaggeration, and, and that I would put I'd, I'd put into a couple buckets that, that that your whole life is nothing but a series of supernatural encounters. Yeah, I don't see that either. Uh, so that, that it's sort of an over overcompensation. So when things happen to me, I'm perfectly willing. To consider that this conversation I had, this confrontation I had, this wonderful thing that happened, this this thing that I just needed to happen right now, could have been put in my path by God or by again, some divine agent for my benefit, or you know to, to impede me. I'm perfectly willing to consider that, and I 'll just leave it to God to to reveal to me or not. Whether that judgment is correct, you know, I, I'm I'm willing to. It's on the table, and it's always on the table. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go through life not absorbing my time trying to parse it. If God wants me to know, He'll let me know. Right. Uh, but I'm 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 certainly willing to go there because I'm not a, an atheist materialist. Okay. On the other side, you know, I I think that people are. You know, I, I don't want to be too judgmental here, but. Uh, because of what I just said, I do think that that people can be possessed, and if I believe they they are possessed, I think they can be delivered.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think the consistent pattern uh, in Scripture is not to not to go looking like you're a gunslinger, right? <laughs> go looking for people who are possessed and demonic spirits and all this kind of stuff. You know, again, as though you're some hired spiritual gun. Uh, when, it, when it comes up, you deal with it only in the authority of Christ, and what I mean by that is not just you, you speak the name of Jesus and something's supposed to happen. Okay, there's a whole, there's a lot of theology that accrues to what we, we talk about as far as the authority of Christ and the kingdom of God and things like this, What what the crucifixion actually accomplished. And the more we are informed as to what that means... Again, to the theological arc, the theological narrative—that is what we ought to appeal to mm. when we are when we are confronted by or confronting anything that we suspect might be just a little more than human. Uh, I don't think we are we are allowed to or or advised to um, confront in an aggressive way any divine power. Again, we. we when those things happen, it, it it's about truth. Mm-hmm. It's about speaking theological truth and and letting God deal with the problem. Um, and and you you're only halfway through the portent, but there there's there's going to be an example of this uh, in, in the book. And I've had a number of people who came out of deliverance ministries as counselors and pastors who are highly suspicious. Of the deliverance ministry, but they nevertheless have continued ministering to people who are programmed either with a, a what we would call a cosmic or a, a spiritual element or not mm-hmm. that have have found what I do in nonfiction and in the fiction really useful and, and really helpful. Um, so I I think I'll probably leave it there. But I I, I am I am with them because. I think a lot of this becomes a bit cartoonish, it, it might be self-serving, it might be carving out some sort of notion that I'm, you know, I'm the spiritual gunslinger now. I, it, what, what that is, is it it, it it creates this atmosphere of elitism, mm. which I think has no place in the Church. Um, we You know, we're not apostles, I don't believe in apostolic succession, and we're not going to launch into a theology <laughs> lesson as to why. Um, I think you had apostolic succession even dying out in the Book of Acts. You know, it. it uh, I don't think we have that, but we do have the truth, and so that is how we confront darkness, whether it's human a human victimized by darkness, or uh, a non-human you know entity, you know, a, a spiritual power, who who represents and comes from the darkness. It's about confronting them with truth, with with. You know who Jesus is, what he did, what it means, especially what it means, and that's where a lot of a lot of these practitioners are weak. They're actually theologically weak, hmm. and, and and theologically, I think under under informed when it comes to again bigger picture kinds of things. Uh, it, it becomes uh, it becomes something of a of you know of a halo episode for right. them. You know it. it And I think that's a bit misguided, it can be dangerous, it could also be misleading in the sense that we think we've accomplished X when we really haven't, you know, and and there are things that can be done, you know, with that, but I'll I'll probably just leave it there. So I I trust that the the practitioners that tell me uh, what they have seen in some of these other ministries and why they left them, and now are trying to do battle with the truth
0: right now what do you think uh, just a couple more questions here what do you hope for people who read your material who study your material uh both the fiction and the nonfiction? what do you want them to walk away with what what would you like them to basically you know
1: get out of out of all the uh all of your work i want them to to gain a, a deep appreciation of providence uh in their life that um God's interest in their life does not need to, and mostly will not, uh, manifest itself in the spectacular. It will manifest itself in lots and lots of little things that you know form the fabric of our lives. And and if we can, if we can get a, uh, a bit of a grip on that, what should come with it is the sense that what I do is important, Uh, you know, it may not be important in a dramatic way, it may not be important in a way that you can even parse or or really articulate. But if we really believe that, as Paul says, that, that each individual believer is now the dwelling point, the dwelling place of the glory that once resided in the tabernacle through the Spirit, and that the mission of the Church, is to reclaim uh, the nations that were disinherited and put, you know, punished, put under the authority of of lesser beings, lesser gods, who became corrupt. Again, this is the Divine Council worldview from passages like Deuteronomy 32. If we really believe this, and that that the, the time of that reclamation began with the ministry of Jesus and continues on through those of us who have the Spirit and the Lord is the Spirit, as Paul says five or six times. If we really believe this stuff, then there's an intelligence about what we're doing. Uh, there, there is a God, there is a Spirit who is using us in the lives of other people, other fellow imagers, to get certain things done. And whether we can discern them or not should not be important. We should, we should try to do the right thing according to Scripture. We should try to serve people. Um, we should advance the gospel, we should we should tell people the truth, and not be afraid to confront evil when we see it. And again, if, if every Christian on the planet thought that way, a lot of things would change. A lot of things would be different. So I think that's sort of the major thrust, that no matter how big the enemy looks, the solution is actually right under your nose. Mm, yeah. The, the, the issue is can it be scaled and and I, I think God is, is working you know, he, he uses people to try to get people to take their eyes off their circumstances the, the things that the world offers and you know all these again theological things that we're probably familiar with but we don't take too seriously if we took them seriously um, things would change things would be different yeah and, it, and this is what's supposed to happen, and if you're not going to participate, God isn't going to give up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, you will you will suffer the loss of reward, and God will move the program on through someone else. Um, you know, if you want to just sit on the sidelines, you know, God will let you do that. Uh, you know, there will be a, a a cost, and not not in the terms of salvation or anything like that, but uh, I think there will be, you know, some regret. There'll, there'll be I think that's what Paul was afraid of—just knowing that he had failed, mm. and not not wanting to confront that thought um, terrified him. Right. So again, I, it's about mindset. It's about truth. It, it's it's about thinking the right way and, and trying to do the best you can, uh, believing that that God will use it in some way.
0: Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love that, and I, and I feel that. Perhaps, you know, and who really knows how long we have before we really see things unfold, you know, whether it be UFOs over, you know, the White House or whatever it may be. (laughs) Um, I think you bring up the greater importance of what we're supposed to be doing in terms of, and again, you said that, you know, it may not be spectacular. We may not be, you know, the foot soldiers, so to speak, in the end times when the Antichrist is reigning, but maybe we will, you know, and so in terms of being theologically sound will become of vital importance if and when such things begin to happen. So uh, yeah,
1: some, of, some of the more powerful things that, that we're familiar with are things that are never seen or detected, right until, until critical mass, until it's too late. you know yeah, a virus that lurks in the body is not really spectacular, but as it multiplies and eventually takes control, then it's like it's unstoppable. Right. You know, so they're, they're just, you know, it's an analogy from, from nature that I think is, is useful. I mean, if, if, if we really thought of ourselves in this way, that we are collectively this unstoppable force, and the, it's an asset that it's not detectable. It's an asset that it's the cumulative effect of small things um, again, our our mindset would just change.
0: Yeah. I feel that this is a a new area of maybe, uh, you know, some self-help stuff that (laughs) could be much more (laughs) grounded and rooted in biblical uh, theology. Dr. Michael Heiser, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people go
1: to find all your work? The main hub is my homepage. That's www.dr, as in doctor, drmsh.com. drmsh.com. You'll see links there to all my blogs and books that are out, like the novels and books that are coming up in early 2015. It's all there. All right, you
0: guys make sure and go and do that while you're at it Make sure you go to iTunes leave a rating or a review You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and also Instagram Uh, Also, if you guys like what you hear with these episodes and these interviews Make sure to share them with friends and family That's how we're gonna get the word out That's how we're gonna get the truth out to people and help people wake up to what's going on And people like dr. Michael Heiser Their work is definitely going to help, especially believers, even seasoned believers, understand the times we are living in and understand what's most important as the church starts to go underground, as Dr. Michael Heiser believes. So, make sure you go and do that. Again, canarycryradio.com is where everything is at. Sign up for the email list. There's tons to do there, so definitely check it out. Basil will be back in the next episode, so... Stay tuned for that. I think we'll be able to pump out one more episode in 2014. But until then, think outside the cage.